the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, blatant leaps in logic, broken combs in a rain barrel, and a fish stick dinner under the Lindenwood trees. Plus, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have part two of a two-part discussion with Charles E. Gannon on his new novel, Raising Cain. This is book three in Chuck's Compton Crook Award-winning Hugo-nominated Cain Riordan science fiction series, the sequel to Trial by Fire and Fire with Fire. We also continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. Now the news. The October EARCs are halo-jumping into the haystacks of your long-term memory this month. By the way, an EARC is a kite on a string that is actually a kite on a string, eyeing the landscape for imprudent rabbits. No, no, not true. An EARC is an electronic advanced reading copy, with all the glorious typos left in, but arriving earlier than the print and regular ebook versions of a book. The October EARCs include... Uh, you're going to like this, a new Vorkosigan novel. It's Gentleman Joel and the Red Queen, E-Arc. This is a new entry in the award-winning series from multiple New York Times best-selling author Lois McMaster Bujold. Cordelia Naismith Vorkosigan returns to the planet that changed her destiny in this one, and Miles investigates his own mother. Also out is the Dark Victory E-Arc by Brendan Dubois. This is a slam-bam tale of tough survivors fighting against a decade-long alien invasion of Earth. Brendan's got a great action-oriented writing style that I think you'll enjoy. And there's the 1635 A Parcel of Rogues e-arc. This one is a book by Eric Flint and Andrew Dennis. And this one, the uptimers, that is the people from uh, Grantville, West Virginia, who've been thrown back in time and Oliver Cromwell have to escape from the Tower of London. And you'll see a lot of merry old England in this one. Finally, there's a debut novel from award-winning Eric James Stone. It's in E-Arc now, and it's called Unforgettable. But it's actually a cool science fiction thriller about a CIA agent who actually is forgettable. Nobody can remember him five minutes after he's gone. Gentlemen, Joel and the Red Queen, Dark Victory, 1635, A Parcel of Rogues, and Unforgettable are all available now as eARCs and only at BainEbooks.com. This is part two and the conclusion of our two-part interview with Charles E. Gannon on his new entry in the Kane Riordan science fiction series. This one's called Raising Kane. Part 1 is available on last week's podcast. I want to welcome Charles E. Gannon to the podcast. Hello, Chuck. Hello. How are you doing, Tony? Chuck Gannon is the author of Compton Crook Award-winning, nationally best-selling, 
Nebula nominated Fire with Fire, Trial by Fire, and now Raising Cain, which is the third book in the Cain Reardon series. He's the author with Eric Flint of 1636 The Papal Stakes and 1636 Commander Cantrell in the West Indies in the Ring of Fire series. And with Steve White, Chuck is the co-author of Starfire series entries Extremis and Imperative. He's also the author of multiple short stories, uh, a member of Sigma, the SL think tank, which has advised various intelligence and defense agencies since the start of the millennium. Uh, Raising Cain is now at booksellers everywhere. That's what we want to talk about today. Well, tell us about, uh, since we, you brought it up, uh, Dora, who is, uh, works for Gaspard. Um, is she, one of the things we know is she doesn't like to have dust put on her very much, but tell us a little bit about her background and her character, because she has a really cool character in the book. And we, she's one thing at the beginning, and, and we really come to, to understand her a lot more through the course of the book. Yeah, and it's it's hard to talk much about her without implicitly. Uh, it, you can talk about her, but if I talk about her in certain ways, it creates a kind of spoiler uh, regarding a mystery in the book. Uh, let us simply say that she is driven by many motivations, and she's driven by motivations that are not common to most of our characters. Most of the characters in the story thus far, when you get right down to it, have been essentially privileged representatives of various first world nations when you get right down to it uh we're talking about the superpowers we're talking about the older more stable nations of europe and and the rest of the world dora's not from there dora is from a very different she's originally marginally trinidadian but when we learn her background, we learn that it's actually quite a polyglot background that dates to a period of time which has not been detailed in the storyline yet called the Megadeth, which sounds like a rock band, but it is not. Um, and and it deals it, it addresses a period in time in this century, the century we are actually living in, real you know, trademark real world, where um, if you will, there were a bunch of a bunch of uh, a bunch of situations came to a head which resulted in a technological and an economic retrenchment that really was fairly severe for five years. The reason it's called the Megadeth, and I think this is the first this is the first place I will have ever publicly said this, is because for three to four years on a daily basis, the 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 actuarial mortality rate of planet Earth at that time was one million on the average per day over what it should have been. So when you do the math, what that means over the course of three years, you will have a billion dead you should not have. Uh, if you're thinking massive nuclear war, you'd be absolutely wrong. Um, there's a there's a story I want to tell one day called The Horsemen Are Gregarious, um, and I'm referring to the four horsemen. And the bottom line is, when you think about it, you almost never get one of those things without the other three coming along. And uh, and this is what happens in the Megadeth era. Uh, she is, in many ways, a sort of uncomfortable reminder of what we went through in the 21st century. And uh, and she is that voice that sort of sort of has now entered the storyline, which says yes. But while all you well-educated folks who grew up in safe areas have been doing important work for all of us on our behalf. There are others of us. You are not. 
the whole population of the world. And I guess this is this is where this is one of the reasons why Earth is very why I wanted a balkanized Earth. Why I <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna lose tons of readers here, guys. Gals, the bottom line is, I really like the Star Trek franchise, but you know that second, that next generation thing, too smug. Everything was too perfect. You know, every, you got a feeling that everybody pretty much lived in a gated community or something like that, and and that's just, I don't see that as our future for a very long time, if ever. But I also didn't want to simply drive around that point, and and. Pandora Veridin is my opportunity to, to begin to say, what does the rest of that world look like? What have, what have they come, what associations have they come away with regarding where Earth is right now? Well, she's a, she's a very cool wrench that you throw into the works. Um, well, let's talk about this last Sriti. Uh, they're a potential ally or something like that to humanity. Um, Kane interacts most most with uh, their representative. Um, I don't. He's he's our protector. I, what is his role? This is I'm talking about uh, Yithri Ahash. Yithri Ahash is um, he is called I believe a prime Russia Russiasinator. Um He would be the. It's it's very difficult actually to make productive parallels between the societies we have and the society they have. The closest that I could think of would be one of the rulers of Plato's Republic, which of course is, Plato's Republic is this, you know, as as some philosophers have said to, to synopsize it, is one of the most ambitious and optimistic fairy tales about human governance that has ever been conceived. It would work perfectly if humans were perfect, according to Plato's definition of perfection. And of course, you know, <laughs> pick that apart at any point, since none of those perfections exist. But for the Slisrithi, for a variety of reasons, there are all sorts of issues related with human ego and hierarchy that are not present for them. Uh, they're not suppressed. They're literally not present. He comes closer to being one of, if you will, the sort of governor, senator, judges, I guess you could say, of that society. He is a protector of, of, you, of the human delegation, yes, but he's also sort of in a peculiar role as being simultaneously an ambassador plenipotentiary, a first contact specialist, and a uh, and I guess you could say on-site philosopher and and um, and mentor for humans trying to understand. And if those seem like impossibly tangled roles that no one human would ever be given in our society, I would agree with that and say, and that's part of the definition of what makes the Slusriti so alien. Yeah. Well, at one point you have. One of the characters, I think it may be Keynes, uh, think, good grief, their evolution has made them the ultimate communists. Um, they are not, they didn't evolve in, like you say, um, they weren't the, the, the dawn of man, uh, the tool users. Um, they had this sort of macroevolutionary evolution. Could you talk a little bit about that? This is a really cool concept. Um, I'd be happy to. The, the, um, so if the if the 
to go back to the thing I was talking about earlier, that every species has its own sort of, you know, dawn of intelligence story in my mind. If in humanity, it is the bonus tool and weapon. For them, it's deal-making. It's rewarding other related species. So to give you an example, to go back to their sort of origin story, not that they have it as a story, but this is probably what happened or something like it. So let's say the dominant group, the group that is the most tending towards tool use, higher organization, is on the verge of intelligence, feels that it's getting, it's, it's getting, you know, predators are hitting it really hard and are they going to make it? Their answer is, oh, sure, they understand sticks and stones. They're starting to. But what they realize is, yeah, but there are these, if they're chimpanzees, they realize that there are some mandrels who live in the next valley. And so what they do is they find amongst those mandrels the ones that are a little less aggressive, and they just, they start stealing bird's eggs and leaving them for the mandrels. And they train the mandrels to come in and get their eggs every day. Well, if that goes on, the mandrels, of course, aren't going to want to hunt these these chimpanzees because the chimpanzees, fun, fundamentally, they under, the mandrels, although they can't speak, understand that this is the goose that's laid the golden egg. Ultimately, if something else threatens their goose that laid the golden egg, the mandrels intervene on behalf of the chimpanzees. This sort of deal-making, this sort of conditioning to, as the basis of deal-making is the equivalent of the Slosrithi bone as tool and weapon. This is how they got power. This is how they uh, ensured their survival. And when you think about that, and just stopping there and say to yourself, because this is all I did, okay, if that is how you succeed in the evolutionary sweepstakes, how does that begin to shape everything you do, the way you see the world, your philosophies, the way you expand, what sort of technologies you do and do not develop, and how you develop them? And really... You know, for me, it's just being consistent with that, and that's that's really what's going on with them. And they're, I, I would hate to spoil any of the the little surprises that we get along the way, or sometimes big surprises we get along the way, with one potentially ominous reveal or potential reveal at the end. Um, uh, you know, like I said, I don't want to give a lot away, but this really drives pretty much everything that you see about them that's different from us. Yeah, they're one of the the, the cool science fiction things. Uh, I mean, the the sort of hard science fiction things is that they they don't actually terraform worlds, or they're more like slarithi form slarithi form worlds. Of course, yeah. That has more to do with 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 adapting the ecology. Um, and you have a couple of cool uh, examples of that. Um, just talk about how the um, is it a Dumbrus the Terminator world is really a cool idea. How does how does that work? Um, and, it, and it seems very uh, plausible. Um, Adam Bratis, um, which um, you know, Adam Bratis means to be around a shadow things for us largely using Latin um, because they've realized that we've named our many of our things in Latin that's why we're called Terran the real it's it's not this is I guess you could say it's a throwback to 50 science fiction but the real issue is I was thinking so everybody sits down and they've got to come up with a name for something you've got to settle on a dead language 
either that or some, you know, somebody's culture either wins or you settle on a dead language. And, of course, the, the dead language that everybody knows because of medicine and science is going to be Latin. So the Slasriti communicate to us, and they, they translate this world as, as meaning uh, into our world, into our one of our languages is Adambratus. Adambratus is a roughly, slightly smaller than Earth-sized planet in the habitable zone of a red, uh, of a, a red, Dwarf, red subdwarf, a type five um, star. Now, what that means physically, and this isn't me making it up. I mean, you can you can go go on. If, if probably almost everybody who's listening to this has has probably gone to the NASA exoplanet site and probably knows as much about this or more than I do. But the bottom line is that the that the to be inside the habitable zone of a red dwarf. A planet is going to be is going to be tidally locked. That means it's going to it will be in a one to one orbital resonance. It will rotate once for every revolution around that star. In other words, meaning one face is always is always aimed at the star one away. So you get a hot side and a cold side. Um, what this does is it creates what they call a a, a bio band. In in a, a, a along the Terminator line, it's not a precise band. Um, and of course, one of the things, and then, then I started, and actually, there are two people I credit in the book. Um, I was really, uh, deeply, deeply indebted to and deeply dependent upon, um, two people in particular, Gerald Nordley and Stephanie Osborne, who, uh, who both have, uh, professional credentials in these fields. Stephanie was a, uh, a payload. Uh, specialist for uh, for NASA, unless I'm much much mistaken, and writes some great books, by the way. She's yeah, she's uh, co-written some stuff with Travis Taylor. Uh, and uh, they were very very uh, very generous with their time and their expertise, uh, going into the details of what that environment would be like and the the uh, the things I would need to consider to make it uh, a believable scenario. There was a third person who actually is in charge of. The exoplanet assessment and collation uh, uh, pro- program for NASA, which is strangely enough located in um, in New York, and I should say it's the ones that they're, they're looking at as as interesting candidates for for alternate or or carbon-based biologies. Um, so 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 I would I, like to say I came up with all this on myself, but really I'm just I'm just titrating down what the experts believe. So this creates a very unusual world, and it, it requires certain things to occur for it to be at all habitable, even to have that habitable band. One thing is that it needs to probably have a glacier. The reason it needs to have a glacier is because if that glacier does not move back and forth, what you won't get is, if you will, a protective shield, if you will, a ridge line that will be that will offer shade from the sun, because if. Um, for a whole variety of reasons, this would probably occur if there's enough water. If there isn't enough water, then you will not get a glacier on the backside where the water will tend to freeze out and accrue. Um, it will not, however, be stable there because all planets have something, a, a wobble effect called vibration, uh, which has to do with essentially that the, the Terminator line is not a perfect you know, sort of razor sharp end of, you know, the light goes no further than this. It's, of course, you know, just the way we get false dawn and dusk. Have uh, have we said that it it's tidally locked, that is, one face is, is toward the, the red dwarf? Right. As, as I said, since it's got a one-to-one orbital resonance, it means that one yeah. side is always facing toward the sun, the other always away. That gives you a hot side and a cold side. Yeah. 
So on the cold side is where you get the water and, and probably a glacier. That glacier probably moves back and forth due to vibrational characteristics, which means it goes through melt and thaw cycles based on a variety of things, flare, uh, higher solar activity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, stellar activity, I should say. Um, that will, of course, create what we see on our planet, which or is likely to create moraines, or in other words, lines of hills and mountains, which are actually where glaciers stop and they, they, because glaciers sort of work like snow plows, they grab up gravel off the road and dirt off the road and they leave it behind. Imagine that happening thousands of times over the course of millions of years. Well, you get a ridge line and it is between that glacier and that ridge line that you might actually have uh, a plausible habitable zone. There are, there are other problems with it that I won't go into here which would be altered by a whole variety of other factors, whether it actually has a rotating magnetic core, you know, how much UV is being put out by the red dwarf, which would have a tendency to break down um, various atmospheric components over time. But the bottom line is that this is a this these planets became interesting to the to the exoplanet community because when you take a look at the stellar population of this and pretty much all parts of our galaxy and the others we can see red dwarfs are by far the large the, the most common star i mean they they represent more than even a simple majority i don't remember the percentages off the top of my head but it's i think far north of 50% so you're going to have a lot of opportunities for this to occur um, and granted, a, a planet would have to be at just the right spot to do it, but like I said, that's an awful lot of stars. So this is what, Adam Bratis is one of these, and they go to this planet, and this is early in the phase of, I guess you could call it, Slusriti forming, and the way they do this is they try to introduce species not only from their own world. This is one of the things that's really cool in my mind about talking about interstellar exchange, which is the moment you go to another another star system and you find other life, you may be able to bring some of that back to your own planet or not, depending on careful testing and quarantine. But one of the other things, and certainly this is the way the Slosriti look at it, maybe something they found on planet A is useful actually on planet B. Some of the things that therefore become amenable to them on planet B may be useful on planet C. So they have this huge, if you will, palette of different biological colors from which to paint in whichever environment they must go to create a mural to their own biological liking and comfort. Um, and that is what they're doing on Adam Bratis. And they do it in, in this very much the same way. As a matter of fact, there's a scene there between creatures where the cooperative creatures are rewarded of a given species and the non-cooperative, more threatening creatures are not. Well, what does that mean? It means to whatever degree that the creatures that cooperative may be due to size, maybe that due to, you know, certain, certain genetic tendencies towards being slightly less aggressive, whatever the, those are the ones that are going to reproduce more frequently because those are the ones that are getting fed and cared for. The others are getting chased away. So what happens? Well, you're fundamentally selecting for a gene. It's no different than what we've done with breeds on our own planet. I mean, when you think about it, there were no dachshunds, you know, back in the back in the fifteen thousand BC. Dachshund. Yeah, that was a happy time for me because I got bit by a dachshund when I was young, and I wish there was none. Anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> Just... But wouldn't it be cool if there were had been dachshunds back in the Pleistocene, you know, running running under the bellies of mastodons? I just think that would have been a cool thing. But yeah. we pretty much know that wasn't the case. But we know what they were bred for. They were bred to be able to get in rat holes. 
Right. That's that. Many small dogs were bred for the. So how did that happen? And you, to you, bite little boys. The <laughs> legs off dogs. You when you saw the features you wanted, you kept breeding those features together, and ultimately it becomes genetically dominant in this in a particular subspecies within within Canis. Well, this is exactly the same thing that the Slosithi do, except for that we do it a little bit. They do it with everything. Absolutely everything. And they sort of maintain a sympathy, a symphony of, of in doing it. It's not just one species. It's all kinds of things that they interrelate, right? It's absolutely, the matrix is the really complicated part. And they are, and one of the things we see in the stories is that as we get to know them better, we realize that it is not, if you find it, their answer to something is not simply, oh, this looks good, let's throw it in. Their attitude is, we are agents of change, yes, but we also understand that too much change becomes impossible to manage. So they, they understand, as I think, uh, you know, because uh, we spoke about this a little bit earlier, and you talked about, you, you mentioned that you felt they were sort of on a, doing almost a tightrope act, and they are. Um, and they understand that. Um, you know, how, how far is too, how much is too much change, how little is too little. And that's, that is not a stationary target, that's a moving target. And everything you do, changes how the target moves. The other planet where we probably shouldn't talk too much about disparity because um, it, it gives away too much to talk about it, but a lot of the action takes place there. Suffice it to say perhaps that um, I'm never going to go swimming in a lake with lily pads and have the same thoughts as I would before. <laughs> well done. No, no reveal, but a great truth and, and, and a tantalizing bit of bait trailed in the water, which when people read that scene, we'll find perhaps a, a grim amusement in, in the image I just used. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Not, not, a, not, a free swim, not a free swim zone. Absolutely not. Be careful. So, uh, yeah. I mean, you said before you're working on book four. What, what are you working on currently? Is it book four? Are we um, continuing with, with this uh, great, amazing milieu and story? So what I'm working on literally right now is um, I'm finishing up um, Oblivion, which is not in the series as all, at all. This is in the Starfire series. Oh, cool. Is this the, the sequel to Imperative? It is the sequel to Imperative, absolutely. And it is, it is safe to say that they're in the same way that uh, uh, Death Ground and Shiva option was sort of an arc, and, and then you had closure to that arc, and I guess it was, I think it's Shiva option. I, I can't remember. The, I wasn't writing the series at that time, and I forget the order. But but you, this Oblivion, in a sense, is a is a conclusion of um, a, a dyad that is comprised of Imperative and Oblivion. But in a in a way, it is it is a larger conclusion of the larger arc of the of the arrival of the Arduins in human space that begins in Exodus, uh, comes to its first, if you will, first phase resolution in Extremis, but then we have new challenges that arise over the course of Imperative and then finally are resolved in Oblivion. Well, we should say that Imperative isn't out yet. It's going to be out in the spring, and uh, we'll certainly talk to you about, you and Steve White, about that when, when it comes out. Yeah. And uh, so we're finishing up the, the one after that right now. Then I go on to the fourth book in this series, which is called Kane's Mutiny. 
Um, and uh, that one is, uh, we, we the, the, the setup for that I think is pretty clear at the end of book three. Uh, you know, Cain right away and his, and a group of sort of traveling companions which have now sort of uh, arrayed themselves to some degree around him not because he's such a cool guy, but because they are all, in, in their own way, they are, um, they've all got reasons why going home is problematic. And, uh, and realize that, that in some ways, this is the closest thing they may have to a family. Um, when people said where I was going, when people asked me where I was going with the series originally, I said, well, I want you to think of Band of Brothers, of Band of Brothers mixed with League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And um, at the end of the third book, I think people may be able to see that starting to come about. Um, and in book four, that group is immediately is responding to something that we see them being tasked with at the end of book three uh, that will take them into literally a planet that is in a codominium system, partly partly controlled by the Arat Kor, partly controlled by the Sakhruf. And trouble is brewing there, and and clearly, I think the book ends with. I I consider it. I had a I had a great time writing those last lines of the book, simply because they. It is a mystery that is that seems so entirely off the wall, uh, and yet, as you will see when you get there, um, there are there are dire and plausible explanations for why that mystery is there, and that is what book four is about. Um, and I will say that there's a bit of a seizure between book four and book five. But book five, which is titled um, uh, Mark of Cain, which is not M-A-R-K from the Bible, although certainly it's playing on that, but it's M-A-R-Q-U-E of Cain. So you can probably get something else, an intimation of something else that's going on there, perhaps connected with that notion of Band of Brothers and League of... of um, of, uh, of extraordinary gentlemen, given what a letter of Mark is, um, that we will get a chance to visit. I think, let's put it like this: you don't get all the answers going to the door, going to meet the Dornani, but you're going to get a bunch. And that's where we go in, in book five. However, before I get to book five, I'll be doing two more books in the 1632 series. Yeah, cool. Uh, one of the things that's probably important to mention is that the first book is free now as an ebook. Um, which will get people who may not have yet dipped into the series, maybe to dip in. Yeah, Fire with Fire is part of the Bain Free Library now, right? It is indeed, and um, that's been a great point of entry for an awful lot of folks. It's, you know, I certainly understand. I was very glad when Tony approached me on that um, and uh, thought, and she was absolutely right, it's a fantastic idea. And uh, I, my attitude is the more people who are willing to come along for this interstellar caravan ride, the better. Uh, if you haven't yet, uh, please go. The price of entry free, how does it get any better than that? And then to make sure that you want to keep traveling with the caravan, something else that uh, I think is really under-advertised about Bain and is absolutely unique in the field and incredibly smart and I think fair to uh, to consumers is that you can usually get the first 14 chapters or so of all of the novels that Bain puts out. So 
if you like novel one and you think you might like the others, but you're not sure, well, you know what? You can take a very extensive test drive at uh, at Bain.com, going to there to take a look at those samples. So um, avail yourself of that, uh, not just for me, but I think for all these these wonderful products and and support a company that really tries to uh, to give you the consumer a look a real strong look and test drive at what you might be uh, putting your hard-earned money down on yeah tony's uh motto is it's all about the readers the uh you can find fire with fire at banebooks.com um and there's a link there to the free library there's lots of pr- great stuff in there the book is raising cane by charles e gannon book three in the cane reardon reordan science fiction series it's now available at booksellers everywhere it's a great read Chuck, thank you so much for being with us. It's been great fun, as always, and uh, you guys um, at the podcast and your listeners are just some of the coolest folks in the science fiction community, and that is saying a lot since it's filled with very cool people. (laughs) Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. This portion of Under a Graveyard Sky is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you are not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Now here is another segment of John Ringo's novel of zombie infestation and the heroic humans who fight back, determined to pull the world from disaster and humanity itself from the brink of annihilation. It's all taking place under a graveyard sky. Chapter 14 Sophia spun around and saw Faith fire at one of the fast-approaching infecteds. The fifty-ish woman was thrown back with her chest opened up by the twelve-gauge round. She wasn't the only one inbound for the concert-goers. Sophia didn't even hesitate. Her father had run her through too many tactical ranges, and her actions were muscle memory. She'd been standing towards the back of the group, and now stepped forward, covering their rear, and ripped her 1911 from its holster. Taking a two-handed grip, she targeted the closest zombie, putting two 45 rounds into his chest. She was using polymer-tipped expanding hollow points, which on impact spread out to make not a 0.45-inch hole, but a nearly inch-wide hole. The lab tech had recently been getting an eclectic master's-level course in biology, including mammalian anatomy and physiology. She could practically recite the blood vessels her rounds took out without doing the autopsy. The infected took two more steps and dropped. She'd been carrying a round in the chamber and a full magazine for the 1911. If she'd been in the earlier argument with her sister, she would have pointed out, didactically, that that way a 1911 can carry eight rounds, which did for four infecteds. But there were more. This job fucking sucks. Specialist Cameron Gunner Randall, New York Army National Guard, was tired, aggravated, and frustrated. He was a freaking 13 Foxtrot, a fire support specialist. He was supposed to be calling for artillery fire, 
not roaming the streets of New York enforcing the curfew. Among other things, they weren't enforcing the curfew. There was a fucking concert going on right there in Washington Square Park, and he and his guys had to just maintain presence. What the fuck did maintain presence mean? What they really were were roaming zombie collectors. They carried their issue M4s, but so far, all they'd used were tasers. Taser the zombie, inject, call for pickup. Tell people there was a curfew. Tell people, not order them back to their flipping homes. Remind them, and the ROE for shooting a zombie with your M4 went to ten pages. And don't bother the concert. It really, really sucked. He never thought that a deployment in the States would suck more than the Stan, but this sucked. Well, at least it's a slow night. Sergeant James R. Worf Copley thought their current job was idiotic on so many levels it wasn't funny. Among other things, since zombieitis, whatever they were calling it this week, was incurable, the care facilities were not only getting overrun with infected, they'd started as nightmares and just gotten worse. Killing them, sad as it was, would have been a mercy, and if they were going to have a curfew, it should be enforced. But this was New York City, the city that never slept, and even with occasional power outages, food shortages, and zombies, it was going to go right on being the city that never sleeps, until things blew over, or it all went to shit. Maybe all the zombies are at the concert, Private Patricia Estroja said wistfully. I don't suppose we could stop by just for a bit to ensure security? I'm not really into alternative, Sergeant Copley said. Besides, he paused as he heard the distinctive boom of a shotgun from the direction of the concert, followed by a series of shotgun and pistol blasts. What amazed him was that whoever was caterwauling kept right on singing over what was working up to be a full-fledged firefight. On the other hand, Randall said, let's roll, Copley replied. Fours, not tasers. Sophia was reloading, visually tracking another inbound target when her arm was grabbed from behind. What are you doing? Christine asked. You can't shoot those zombies. Can't, may not, and shouldn't are three different things, Sophia said, seating the magazine and letting the slide go forward. And what I'm doing is protecting you. Why the hell are you still here? She looked over her shoulder and was amazed that the concert was still going on. Thinking about it, Voltaire hadn't even missed a beat. They come every night, Todd said. It's their concert. What? Sophia asked, her eyes wide. Don't they... don't you get attacked? They bite some people, Christine said. Sometimes they eat... I've been waiting to get bitten, but they haven't taken me yet. What? Sophia screamed. The infected was inside 15 meters, so she put two rounds in her chest and turned back, keeping her weapon pointed downrange and looking over her shoulder. What? Are you flipping nuts? You want to be a zombie? There's nothing to be afraid of if you're a zombie, Christine said, starting to cry. You just are. You just exist. It's like... It's like Zen, you know, Todd said, swaying back and forth. You just exist in the moment, man. There's no stress, no school, 
No work, just eat or be eaten. It's like Rousseau's noble savage, the beast inside every man. You are absolutely batshit fucking nuts, Sophia said, looking back to the target zone. Another inbound. I am not going to be turned into a zombie. My sister got infected and she pulled through, and we are not going to be zombies. We are not. You just don't get it, Todd said. Myrmidon? Idiot, Sophia said, double-tapping the next inbound. She looked around and had time, so she quickly reloaded her magazines. And now you've brought the fucking soldiers here, Christine said disgustedly. They're going to just blow us all away, baby killers. You want to be a zombie? Sophia asked. She grabbed Todd by the arm and walked him over to the nearest fresh corpse. Then she pulled out a clasp knife. Cut your arm. Wipe some of the blood on it. Instant zombie. I, Todd said, let go of me. You're not going to because you're afraid, Sophia said, holding the knife up to eye level. You're afraid because you're not willing to fight back. You're the poet. What's the thing about the raging and darkness? You mean Dylan Thomas? Todd said disdainfully. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Do not go gentle into this good night, Sophia snarled, waving at the darkness all around. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. The wise men at their end know dark is right. Because their words at fork no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Good men, the last wave by, crying how bright their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. That is what you should be doing, she finished. Raging against the dying of the light. You're not even in old age. You knew the poem. Todd said wonderingly. I got an A-plus in a really tough AP English class, Sophia said, and AP physics, and calculus, and I know how to kill zombies. What the fuck have you been doing with your life? You want to tell us what's been going on here, miss? The sergeant of the three-man team asked. They weren't up and pointed, but you could tell they were here for a firefight. We're having a poetry and philosophy discussion, Sophia said holstering her pistol. I'm glad you could join us. Contractors, Copley said disgustedly. Never thought I'd have to deal with you guys in New York City. I had enough of you in the stand. Hey, Durante said, shrugging his shoulders. Be glad we were here. Otherwise, half this crowd would be going zombie. From what I got from Sophia, that's happened before, Steve Smith, president of Blue Water Security LLC, said. He hadn't even known he was a president until Tom handed him the certifications. When's NYPD getting here? They're not, Copley said, shaking his head. We're not even getting coroner's office. I'm told to take down the information, then await Graves' registration. It's gotten that bad, huh? Tom said. And your ROE probably still says do not fire until fired upon. It's better than that, Copley said, but not much. So you guys get to shoot him? Randall asked. Not usually, Faith said. Usually we have to taser him. There were too many this time. You guys gotta wear that rig all the time? 
the National Guardsmen were in masks, hoods, and ponchos. Keeps the blood off, Randall said. Makes sense, Faith said. I got in a scuffle with one the other day, and it bled all over me. Ended up very nearly going zombie myself. You do not want to get it, even if you don't zom. Sickest I've ever been in my life. Damn, Randall said. So, you're not going to zombie, right? Certified immune, Faith said. My immune system's got it. Low dosage of the virus, I guess. Don't even have any antibodies anymore. Which is medicalese, for you're not going to be a zombie. Shook it off completely. Not that it was much fun. Horrible sick. I'll keep my poncho on then, Randall said. Let me tell you, this shit is hot, though. Better or worse than the sandbox, Faith asked. Oh, better, Randall said, but not much. Nice rig, Astroja said. What is that rifle? Shotgun, Faith said. Saiga, it's an AK variant that fires 12-gauge. She dropped the magazine and cleared and handed it over to the private. Ten-round magazine, which beats a pump all to hell. Is it reliable? Randall asked. May I? Sure, Faith said. As long as I get it back, especially if we get any more visitors. Nice, Randall said. Love the kukri, Faith said, gesturing at the combat knife on his belt. Carried it in Iraq and the Stan, Randall said. He hesitated for a second, then handed it over. Thought it might come in handy. Sweet, Faith said, examining it. It had the word boosh carved on the handle. I've got one on the boat. They said it was overkill for tonight. Famous last words. There is no overkill, Randall intoned. There is only open fire and reload. Schlock fan, huh? Faith said. I knew the world was coming to an end when Schlock didn't update. It's heavy, Astroja said. The Saiga. I'll take the firepower any day. Faith said, gesturing with her chin at the M4. The U.S. started to go downhill when it changed from a round designed to kill our enemies to one designed to piss them off. Nice quote, Randall said. That one I don't recognize. Read it on some blog, she said, then looked up. The entire skyline had gone black, as had all the lights in the park. Oh, that is not good. Getting home is going to be a bitch and a half. I wonder if the subways are out too, Astroja said nervously. I'd hate to be in a subway in the dark in this. We've got, Faith paused. She reached for her saga. Wasn't what I was going to say, but what we've got is movement. A woman was running through the park pursued by a zombie. Before she could get to the relative safety of the group of concert goers, another came at her from the side and knocked her down. She started screaming. Move it, Copley said, waving. The threesome ran to the woman, stopping just short to fire tasers into the zombies attacking her. One of them seemed to be trying to sexually assault her. Okay, Faith said. That's just gross. She looked away and then turned back at another scream. Astroja had been attacked from behind by another infected. She was struggling to throw it off. Randall tasered it, but there were more. Suddenly, the threesome was surrounded by zombies, and there were now screams from the concert goers. Looking around, Faith realized that there were more and more of the zombies closing on the concert. The lights, 
Tom shouted. They're zeroing in on the lights. Suddenly, an M4 went to full auto, and Faith heard rounds zipping by her head. Copley pushed his way through the crowd of zombies, dragging Astroja by the harness. She could see Randall, clearly out of rounds and with no time to reload, wielding his kukri and chopping zombies left and right. Rock and roll, Copley screamed. Just shoot, we're in armor. Authorized, Tom said, taking a two-handed stance. Try not to hit the good guys. Uncle Tom, Faith said, backing towards her group and firing to the side. We've got more coming. This way too, Stacy called. They're in the concert. Faith glanced over her shoulder and saw something she never expected to see, ever. With the defenses around the actual stage, where the lights were, the zombies couldn't climb up. Zombies coming down Fifth Avenue had bent around the stage until they hit the dancers in the mosh pit. A naked, writhing zombie was being crowd-surfed over the group. So far, the moshers seemed to consider the zombies to be a feature, not a bug. Just more people to hit. When it dropped into the regular concertgoers, the screams started, and there were more being crowd-surfed back. Remind me to pick up some mosh gear, Faith shouted. On you, Sophia called. Cover me while I reload, Faith said. There was a tidal wave of zombies coming for them, and she made, if not the fastest, reload in her life, then close. She had to make sure to keep the magazine since she foresaw a time in the not-too-distant future when getting more would be a bit of a pain. And we're back, Faith said, taking three quick blasts to clear their side. Where the fuck are they all coming from? Thanks, Copley said, as the three soldiers reached the perimeter of the contractor group. Thanks, thanks. Reload and start laying down, Tom said. We're not out of this yet, and call for backup. Roger, sir, Copley said. You, specialist, Tom said, pointing to Randall. East side, Durante, south. Faith, west. You, private, he said, pointing at Astroja. North, towards the concert. We're going to start moving south. Steve and I will back Durante. That's right in to most of them, boss. Durante pointed out. He was keeping up a slow-aimed fire with his Saiga. Reloading. Covering, Steve said. Questions later, Tom said, taking down two zombies with two shots. Sergeant, stay on the horn. Roger, sir, Copley said. The NYPD liaison net is down. Ditto cell. I'm down to military radio. Keep at it, Tom said. Durante, start moving forward as soon as we're reloaded. The concert crowd had started to scatter as more and more of the infected swarmed the only light in a mile. Faith could hear screams over the music as they were picked off one by one in the surrounding darkness. She keyed on her tactical light as they moved down the road into the woods. No lights, Tom said. Boss, Durante said, firing. They're attracted to the lights, Tom snapped. The reason we're going south, no lights. Lasers? Faith asked. Authorized, Tom said, firing carefully. Oh my God, Astroja said. Faith glanced to the side and blanched. It was just possible to tell who was a zombie and who was a mosher, but it didn't look as if many of the moshers were left, and the zombies were fighting their way over the fences and razor wire to get to the band.
Most of Voltaire's backup had quit. One was pounding a zombie with an electric guitar, but he was still strumming along. Jasper glittered all over the wall, so they hung him from the ceiling for a disco ball. There was so much angst after the fight, Edward and Bella broke up that night. While some wolves chowed down on a puddle of food that used to be some Rasta vampire dude. There was a crackle of sparks as a zombie hit the power leads for the concert, and the lights shut out with a sudden finality. Faith couldn't see what happened in the darkness, but she could hear the screaming. You wanna, you know, fight zombies here? Sophia asked. I'm borrowing a pistol. Go, Faith said, returning to fighting. She tried to ignore the screams from the crowd. Don't shoot, a woman screamed, running towards the group. Please, help, there was an infected in hot pursuit. Down, Astroja shouted. Get down. The woman was directly in her line of fire, and she wasn't listening. Cover, Faith snapped. She could barely see. Her eyes were still adjusting, but she drew her sidearm and tracked the zombie one-handed. There was a boom. Got it, she shouted. Nice shot, Copley said. Thanks, Faith replied, firing into the darkness. There was a scream, and something started thrashing. Thank you, thank you, the woman sobbed. Hey, Christine, Sophia said airily. I thought you wanted to be a zombie. I changed my mind, okay, Christine said. Quiet, Tom said. Christine started to say something, and he hit her on the back of the head. I said quiet, listen. I don't like being under these trees, Faith whispered. It was darker even than in the main square, and very hard to see the zombies. She flashed her laser around and was rewarded by another thrashing sound. She moved it again, and there was another thrashing. Are you playing laser tag with a zombie? Sophia asked. I think it's trying to chase it, Faith whispered. The sound of the city had nearly died, and all there was was the sound of their breathing, the crashing of zombies in the trees, and the occasional scream in the distance. A horn started blaring, and there were howls in the distance. Just keep moving, Tom said. Don't fire unless you have to. A zombie came loping at the group, and Durante turned to fire. I've got this, Randall said, stepping forward. He let his weapon drop on the sling and held out his left hand. Come on, zombie. Nice fresh hand to bite. He carefully drew his kukri. The zombie grabbed his arm and bit down on the offered hand. As he did, Randall brought the kukri down into the side, chopping into the back of the zombie's neck. It dropped to the ground, twitching. Stay away from the blood spray, Tom said. Oh, yeah, Durante said. Those masks and ponchos make more sense now. You get bitten? Two sets of gloves, Randall said, holding up his hand. Rubber MOPP gloves and tacticals. Didn't even penetrate the rubber. You've been planning that, haven't you? Copley said. Since we got deployed. Sergeant, Tom said quietly. Support? Multiple teams in contact, Copley said. The reaction team is in contact. The bases that aren't deep in buildings are all under attack. If you can, pass that they're attracted to sound and light, Tom said. Go to NVGs. Wish we had them, Randall said. They finally cleared the park. 
There was more light on Washington Square South, but not much. We need wheels, Tom said. Where's the nearest headquarters that's not under attack? Tom asked. 14th Street Precinct reports no movement, Copley said. Banks closer, Tom said, pointing with his pistol to the west. We'll go there. We've got a heavy rescue vehicle. We can get you back to your people. Not going to complain, Copley said. Wait. He put his ear to the radio. Roger, is that confirmed? Roger. We've got ten personnel. Say again, ten. Team 8-3. One civilian, six contractors. Okay. Roger. Do not. Say again, do not use lights. Roger. What? Tom asked. There's an MRAP moving down University Place to NYU to pick up another team that's hot. They can do pickup for us as well. All of us? Tom asked. Or just your team? All of us, Copley said. It'll be tight, but they'll pick us up. East it is, Tom said. Rotate with Durante on the park side. Faith, you're plowing the road. Oh, goody, Faith said. Which way? There, Tom said grabbing her shoulders to point her in the correct direction. Specialist, take the back door. Private, you cover the street side. Sergeant, back up Faith in clearing the road. Roger, sir, Randall said. On it, Copley said. We'd better hurry, though. I'm not sure how long they're going to wait, or if they can make pickup if we don't make the ETA. There was a sudden flash of light, and a yellow cab took the turn onto the street from the direction of the university which meant it was going against the traffic, if there had been any. It was weaving from side to side, dodging most of the zombies. As Faith watched, it hit one, tossing it halfway across the street. As it zoomed by the group, it tooted its horn, and a faint big band swing medley dopplered into the distance. Unfortunately, its antics had attracted the zombies in the park, and they were now closing in on the group. Some were getting caught on the low metal fence of the park, but most were successfully clambering over. Contact, Durante said, pulling the trigger. Tango down. Multiple contacts my side, he fired again. Tango down. Not clear. New plan, Tom said. Middle of the street. Plow the road and shag bloody arse. We are in heavy contact and moving to your position, Copley shouted over the radio. Request support soonest. He was firing his M4 one-handed as he ran. Here, zombies, 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 Faith said. She was panning the Saiga back and forth at shoulder level. As soon as the red laser would appear, meaning something was in its way, she fired. Oh, there's a bunch behind us, Randall shouted. Cover me while I reload. I really wish I'd brought more Saigas, Steve said but what could go wrong with a concert at night in a zombie apocalypse? You're never going to let that go, are you? Faith asked. I'm out, she yelled. Zombies were too close to reload, so she pulled a pistol and started firing. We're getting surrounded, Tom said. We need to keep moving. Take cover, Copley said. There was a sound of a heavy vehicle moving, and a burst of machine gun fire suddenly hit a group of zombies by the park. South side, Tom shouted. By the buildings. Shit, Faith snarled. She dropped behind a concrete planter just as a burst of bullets ripped over her head. Friendlies, 
Copley shouted. He was face down on the ground. He popped a chem light and threw it in the air towards the MRAP. The unlit MRAP continued to lay down fire over their heads as it moved forward, slowly. When it was opposite the group, it stopped and the back doors opened. You waiting for an engraved invitation? Somebody shouted, then fired to the rear. Waiting to make sure you weren't going to shoot us, Astroja shouted. She was in the heavy vehicle like a shot. Thanks, Faith said. I think you nearly tagged me back there. A miss is as good as a mile, the vehicle crewman said. Who's got the count? Me, Tom said. And we're good, he added as Durante boarded. Ow, Sophia said, banging her head. We should have worn helmets. Military vehicles are designed for them, Steve said, leaning forward. Hunch and you probably won't hit your head as much. When did we go hot? Copley yelled. The inside of the MRAP was like being in a rock crusher. It also was occasionally tossing around as if it was hitting potholes. When the lights went out and every zombie in New York City headed for anything with lights on, the crewman shouted. Every team's been hit and just about every headquarters. We are redeploying for active clearance. About fucking time, Randall snarled. It's going to get really tight in here, the crewman said. We've got two more teams to pick up and they've got civilians too. I guess the zombies are enforcing the curfew for us. It was nearly dawn by the time Tom was able to arrange pickup for the group to get back to the bank. So, are you pulling the handle? Steve asked. I'll have to see what the Fed and the board say when they get around to mating, Tom said. He was looking out the window of his office at the darkened skyline of New Jersey. There were a few lights, and although he couldn't see them, he was sure that each was surrounded by a wall of infected persons. I can't pull the handle until the tipping point has clearly been reached. The Fed orders temporary suspension of all operations, or the board orders suspension. I'd say last night was a tipping point, Steve said. For us, maybe, Tom said. But I've got to stay until they pull the handle. You can go. The evac plan is solid. Everybody involved in critical actions or in the evac group has been vaccinated and boosted. His phone rang and he picked it up. Smith. Roger, sir. Understood. I'll send a team to pick them up. Roger. It's under control. Pulling the handle? Steve asked. Sounds like it, Tom said. The chairman and his family are holed up in their apartment on Park Avenue, and apparently they can't get out. Zombies, don't you know? Do me one last favor? Short on teams, Steve said. Very, Tom said. Take the BERT truck and go get them. There's a few other board members as well. Then take it over to the dock and trade places with Kaplan. I'll send Durante with you, but he may need some fire support. I'll contact you on Channel 47, Steve said, standing up wearily. I'm getting too old for this shit. We both are, Tom said. Brother. We'll see you when we see you, Tom, Steve said. You going to say goodbye to the girls? Faith would blow me away like a zombie if I didn't. As a last job for Uncle Tom, that sucked, Faith said, collapsing onto a couch in the saloon. I'm done. I'm so done. It was nearly sundown. They had been up all night, and the way things were going, they were going to have to be up another night.
The 13-year-old was barely out of the hospital. She was toast. The simple job of moving the chairman of the Board of the Bank of Americas, along with his immediate family, which included not only children and grandchildren, but some cousins he thought would be helpful, other board members, their immediate family, and some hangers-on that Steve thought probably fell into the category of mistresses, or in one case, boyfriend, had been a nightmare. The only people who seemed to understand words and phrases like urgency, emergency evacuation, or get-in-the-fucking-truck-lady were the chairman and his wife, Nancy. The chairman had to leave in the first lift to get to the meetings at the bank. There were essentially no electronic communications working. That left his wife trying to persuade a group of wealthy, entitled cats that they needed to move. Didn't happen quickly, and it wasn't helped by the fact that they had to ride in the BERT van. In one of the last lifts, Faith had finally lost it when she heard, I am not going to ride in the back of a simply horrible vehicle like that. The woman was the wife of a president of something or another at the bank. A president, as she repeatedly had pointed out. Hubby had long since left to attend meetings. Faith, who was working the loading point, pulled her forty-five and put it to the woman's head. You can get in the van, or I can turn you into vaccine, she said coldly. Your call. You wouldn't, the lady snapped. Look in my eyes, lady, Faith said. Get in the fucking van, and get in the van now. The lady got in the van. Well, I don't think we're going to be asked for our services again, all things considered, Steve said now. I understand there were complaints. I hope so, Faith said. I think I was, uh... Her eyes closed and she started to snore. It reminds me of when she was four and she used to fall asleep in a plate, Stacy whispered. The difference being she's not four, she's not small, and she's still got all her gear on, Sophia said tiredly. Faith, she shouted, kicking her sister's boot. What's that? Faith said, sitting up and reaching for her pistol. Whoa, Steve said, clamping her hand. You need to get undressed and into bed. Ogazada, Faith said, and her eyes closed again. Mile seven, this is Thunderblast, the radio crackled. That's Tom, Steve said, stepping into the cockpit and keying the radio. Thunder, mile seven. Code is goose. Say again, goose. Confirm, goose, Steve said. As he replied, there was the sound of a distant explosion behind him. Looking north, he saw the center of the George Washington Bridge collapsing into the river. Bloody hell. Roger, Goose. Good luck. Same. Same, Tom replied. Out here. And we are away to better climbs, Steve shouted. He hit the anchor winch switch and looked towards the darkened skyline. There were fires burning out of control in Harlem, and more from the direction of Brooklyn, The same seemed to be the case of the New Jersey side, with widespread fires in every direction. He raised the mainsail and jib, catching the strong northeast breeze, then straightened away to the south. When he was underway, he pulled out his iPod and scrolled through it for the playlist he'd created. There was a recessed input for it right on the console, so he plugged it in and started the playlist. Speed, Bonnie, boat like a bird on the wind. 
he crooned. Onward, the sailors cry. Carry the lad that's born to be king over the sea to sky. That was another segment in our complete audiobook serialization of Under a Graveyard Sky by John Ringo. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a very large object, identified in a relatively nearby solar system that looks suspiciously grail-shaped, and a flight of unchained dragons carrying aloft banners of thanks and gratitude to Charles E. Gannon, author of Raising Cain. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. Radio Hour is brought to you by Bain Books Audio Drama, presenting dramatized audio plays of the best science fiction and fantasy with a professional cast and cinema quality soundtracks. Now available, Eric Flint's Islands based on the novella by Eric Flint. Also available, Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas, based on the novella by Larry Correa, set in the world of the Grim Noir Chronicles at BaneEbooks.com. Just put Islands and Detroit Christmas in the search bar and enter a world of listening pleasure. Bane Books Audio Drama. <laughs> <laughs>